0: Hello, everybody! This is amazing.
1: Yeah, this is wonderful. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Masters of Social Gastronomy. I'm Sarah. And this is what, so What hard. do you do?
0: Um,
1: so my name is Sarah Lohman, and I am the history and social history part, a master's of social gastronomy. I write um, a blog, fourpoundsflower.com, and I write all about uh, culinary history, but why it's important today and how it links to today. And, uh, you know, I do things like eat a moose face sometimes. Stuff like that. And this is Soma. You can read about it on my blog. This is Soma. Soma co-founded the Brooklyn Brainery, which if you haven't been there, you should go to brooklynbrainery.com and get on their mailing list. They do low-cost, low-commitment classes on just about anything you could ever want to learn about. And uh, he does a lot of science and uh, maladies and curious facts.
0: I'm also the only person that posts on our blog, our joint (laughs) blog.
1: You haven't given me the password.
0: I made you an account, I think. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's not important.
1: Yeah, uh, we do have a website for this, for OMG MSG, and a mailing list, too, if you're not on it already. And we also have a hashtag up on this side. So if you are tweeting tonight, please hashtag OMG MSG. Yeah? That was pretty good. Yeah, Remember to so do what, it.
0: so what are we doing tonight?
1: Well, tonight we're going to talk about hot sauce. What are you talking about?
0: All right, so... Here's Wait, first we'll talk about how it works. Uh, The way that our talks work is they're broken into three sections. First, I am going to talk. Then there is going to be one where we both talk.
1: Yeah, story time, where we say things that are somewhat related to our main presentations but maybe didn't quite fit or maybe did. And
0: usually I talk about how I worked at Subway when I was a teenager.
1: Yeah, Um, and then I'm going to talk later, and I'm going to talk all about Sriracha. Ah, I am so excited Oh, my God. I went to such a factory in October. Don't spoil it. Oh, but it's so good. Okay, I can't wait. So that's third. So stick around. Oh, so many secrets. So many secrets.
0: It's fine. It's fine.
1: Um, is that it?
0: Yeah, I could say what I'm going to talk about, but how about I just talk about it instead?
1: Yeah, someone's going first. So um, You have to
0: introduce me. I
1: know what I have to do. Get off the stage. Everybody, please put your hands together, and let's welcome our first speaker of the evening, Mr. Jonathan Soma, talking to you about Hot, Hot, Hot.
0: Thank you, and that was a wonderful cop-out about what I'm talking about, because no matter what I'm talking about, that is true. All right, so uh, this all starts with my friend Layla. Where are you, Layla? You're here. You're right there. Yeah, so me and Layla have always had this debate for, like, the millions of years that I've known her, which hasn't been a million years, about who can handle spicy foods better. Um, She thinks she can handle spicy foods better than me, but that's clearly bullshit because I can handle spicy foods way better than her. Um, uh, All right, so there's a restaurant in Manhattan that was going to solve this problem for us. And it's called Brick Lane. And it is a British Indian restaurant. And so, or like British themed Indian restaurant. And you might think, why do you need an Indian restaurant to be British themed? These notes here are not working at all. Um, Why do you need a Indian restaurant to be British themed? And the reason is because curry and Indian food over there is, God, it's not even like Chinese food over here. It's more than Chinese food over here. It's like chicken tikka masala is the national dish of England, basically. Um, So they're real serious about their Indian food, and they love their Indian food. And this place has a special magic treat um, that is straight from Britain, and it is something called Fall. And Fall was, to the best of my knowledge, invented because you have a bunch of, like, drunken bros trying to best each other at who can eat the spiciest food. And so the restaurants were like, stop eating all of our normal food. We will just make a dish specifically for you that will be incredibly, incredibly spicy. And they just invent, like, it has a very nice, like, ethnic-seeming name. There's, There's, like, a street food dish that's real that's called fall. It's not the same thing. This is basically they take a curry and they just dump all of the chilies that are known to mankind into it, and then they make you eat it, and you hope that you don't throw up. So Brick Lane has something they call the Fall Challenge, where you go there and you want to eat fall. And do I have a picture of the thing? Yes, so that's basically what it looks like. Um, and if you... Nope. So, yeah, too soon. Terrible. Um, so what happens is you go to eat it. And if you've survived the process and can eat all of the fall, they will give you a free beer and, <laughs> and a certificate. So, great, and you're spending $20 on this. So it's $20 for the pleasure of destroying your body, for something that some places on the internet say 10% of people are able to do it, but our waitress said 40% of people are able to do it. I would prefer to think only 10% of people can do it. Uh, The thing is, Layla has a leg up on me, or had a leg up on me, um, because A, she's British, where fall comes from, uh, but number two, she's been involved in curry challenges before. Uh, Once upon a time, she was battling the son of the ambassador to Spain, and he lost because he was crying. (laughs) And he wasn't crying because she was incredibly mean. She's very nice, um, but rather because the food he was eating was so hot and spicy. But the thing was, it wasn't even a fall that he was eating. He was actually just eating a vindaloo. So, I mean, it was probably a very spicy vindaloo. Uh, But to us, I feel like generally at a normal Indian restaurant, Vindaloo is going to be about as spicy as you're going to get. It's kind of vinegary. It's got maybe some potatoes in it. It's just like a spiceful Indian food, but it has the best history out of any dish in the world. So, uh, Vindaloo comes from Goa, which is hiding down there on the southwest coast of India. Um, And the thing about Goa, its claim to fame-ish, is that it was ruled by Portugal from 1510 all the way until 1961, um, which is an incredible amount of time. Um, uh. And so, go back. Okay. And so during this time, they contributed all sorts of colonial influences, as you do. There's maybe 17 years that the Brits ruled Goa, but that's not really important, except they exported Vindaloo back. But the most important contribution, according to me, of the Portuguese to Goa, I'm a historian, clearly, um, is carne de vinha alhos. I don't speak Portuguese, I don't speak Spanish, but I know that this means meat and wine and garlic, and you put them together and you cook a wonderful dish. And so this is a Portuguese dish that's generally made with fatty pork, and then some wine, maybe a little bit of vinegar, and garlic. They brought it over to Goa, and they were like, let's let's eat this dish. And the Goans were like, oh, we have all those spices that you invaded us for. (laughs) So let's add things like coriander and cumin and cinnamon, and it's going to be great. And they were like, great, I love it. We're having a good time. But then they started actually talking to each other. And if you notice, vinha dalhos, if you were to not speak Portuguese like me and mumble a lot, might kind of actually come out like vindaloo so uh the the name vindaloo is actually just a bastardization of this portuguese phrase really for for a a garlic and wine dish but along with the name um the thing that you think of when you think about vindaloo is how spicy it is right you're like vindaloo it's the spiciest thing i can get I'm not going to go get fall and die. Um, I'm going to go get vindaloo because I'm a champ and I love spicy food. So you're thinking the Goans are the ones who were like, oh, with all these other spices we're giving you, we're also giving you chili peppers. Nope, not true at all. Chili peppers are from the New World. There was nothing uh, that was related to a chili pepper in Asia or Africa or Europe or... Antarctica, I guess, any of those continents before the discovery of the New World. So Christopher Columbus um, was one of the first people to bring back uh, chili peppers to the old world. And he did it on his second trip. And the Portuguese were just like, God, we love chili peppers. We're going to steal them from the Americas and spread them all around the world. And the reason why they're called chili peppers or peppers in general is just like columbus was like oh we got some indians over here they're just like those other indians we have elsewhere the only thing that anyone knew of that was as powerful as a chili or as pungent as a chili was black pepper and they were like well we already have a perfectly good name for something that's kind of pungent so let's just call everything spicy pepper it's going to be fine So it's just a linguistic trick or lack of knowledge or people's tongues yelling at them um, that led chili peppers to be called peppers at all. They're not related to black pepper whatsoever. The other thing that's kind of strange about vindaloo is the fact that it includes potatoes. (laughs) Now, the original... I don't know why that's funny. Um, So the original recipe for vindaloo, the uh, one from Portugal, was simply... Fatty pork and garlic and wine, maybe a couple other things, but not potatoes. But there's a trick. So "alu" is the uh, Hindi word for potato, where if you get like "alu gobi or something like that, you're getting potatoes out of it. Well, the word alhos, which is Portuguese for garlic, if you have bastardized this into vindaloo, you're like, ah, oh, vindaloo. Alu, that sounds like potato. They probably want potatoes in this dish. That totally makes sense. So basically the whole history of vindaloo is you start with some chilies from the Americas. You add in a dish that has nothing to do with vindaloo um, from Portugal. You add the spices from Goa. You ship it over to Britain and people are like, fatty pork. We don't want to eat fatty pork. Let's just make everything chicken. And then if you wanted to kind of bring it back around to the fall that I was going to have to eat, you just bring it to America and you plop it down on the Lower East Side and it's time for me to be destroyed. <laughs> Maybe. So <laughs> this is me and Layla. Uh, when we started to do this, Layla, I think, was not aware that this was going to be like a soul-damaging experience. Um, in the description on the menu of fall, it is like you have to... like sign a verbal waiver that you are not going to die and that you're gonna go through with this and you understand what you're doing and it is more heat than flavor and just please don't die on our premises or it will be very sad and I was just full of hubris I guess I was really excited about this I was gonna conquer it and I was gonna win so all right, it shows up and uh, the reason why it's so hot is it has like a million chilies in it, right? But one of the chilies that it owes its real spice to is the butt jalakia, which is the ghost pepper, um, which in 2007 was the spiciest pepper, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. And what? The boot part of that is translated as... Wait, it's from Assam, which is northern India. Um, And, ugh, ugh. I guess I talk about where it comes from later on, the words. Don't worry about it. My notes don't work. We're fine. Okay, so the reason that you know it's the hottest pepper isn't because, like, you fed someone a jalapeno and you fed someone a ghost pepper, and they're like, oh, well, the ghost pepper seems to be about 200 times hotter. No, there's actually some sort of, at least pseudoscience, behind the way they measure the heat of peppers, um, and that is the Scoville scale. So it was invented in 1912 by an American pharmacist with the very 1912-ian name of Wilbur Scoville. And what he did was he decided that if you took an extract of a pepper and started diluting it down, the number of times you had to dilute it in order to make a barely detectable level of heat was what the rating would be on the Scoville scale. So for example, you have a bell pepper. Not spicy at all, you don't have to dilute it, zero on the Scoville scale. Jalapeno pepper, have to dilute it about 5,000 times to get it to a barely detectable level, so it has a level of 5,000. Habanero is about 200,000, so dilute it down 200,000 times. Uh, Ghost pepper is 1 million, so it is scientifically... Um, 200 times hotter than jalapeno. They have other science-y ways of doing this. But what you're really measuring when you're measuring things on the Scoville scale is the amount of capsaicin that is inside of a given pepper um, or the concentration of the capsaicin in there. Capsaicin is the compound that gets in your mouth that makes it feel like you're breathing fire whenever you eat a very hot chili. Uh, The fun thing about its triggers these receptors in your tongue or really has anyone here ever uh, like cut hot peppers and try to take their contacts out <laughs> yeah because it's you're clapping but you everyone should be crying because it's really the worst thing that can ever happen to you uh, don't like pick your nose or whatever after you touch hot peppers because these receptors are all over your mucous membranes I mean they're also just on your skin so never pour capsaicin or you know, uh, pepper spray on your skin, it will be bad. But what these receptors do is generally they trigger at 109 degrees Fahrenheit. And so when it gets hot, they open up and they start saying, hey, it's pretty hot in here. Hey, it's hot. But in the presence of capsaicin, they will open at room temperature. So when you put all this capsaicin in your mouth or all these peppers in your mouth, they're like, hey, it's pretty hot in here. And there's so much capsaicin, they're like, no, seriously, it's fucking hot as shit in here. And it's connected right to your central nervous system where it controls the temperature of your body, so you immediately start sweating. So the reason that you're sweating and the reason it feels hot isn't because there's like secret atomic bombs that are actually making it hot in your mouth, but rather because your body is being tricked into thinking it is at least 110 degrees. which is isn't that hot, really. Um, but the more capsaicin, the higher the temperature uh, you think your mouth is at, and the hotter the temperature your body thinks it's at. So you're sweating everywhere, and it's a horrible experience. And that's actually one of the sticking points for using capsaicin in any sort of medical context, is they give people capsaicin for pain control or something, and then suddenly their body temperature just like drops, because their body's like, oh, it's so hot in here. And you're like, it's not hot in here. You're in a laboratory, you're fine. <laughs> so the reason why we, despite the fact that capsaicin is making us very unhappy, the reason why we still eat these is, well, we're not supposed to eat them at all. The reason why capsaicin even exists is to stop us from eating plants. Plants hate mammals. They hate mammals, well, they might be fine with carnivores because carnivores don't eat plants, but they mostly hate herbivores and omnivores because we have these cool things called molars. And the best job that molars do is by crushing up seeds. So if you're a plant and you wanna make a bunch of baby plants, What do you do? You make a bunch of seeds. But then if you're eaten by a person or a giraffe or a prairie dog, all that happens is all of your little seeds get crushed up and you can't make children anymore and you're so sad in your little plant kingdom. So what you do in order to protect yourself is you create a chemical that is an irritant to mammals such as capsaicin. And then you let something like birds, birds don't have teeth, birds have teeth? Yeah, birds don't have teeth, some might have teeth, it sounds like something I might know. So, but basically birds don't have molars is the important thing, maybe they're carnivorous birds, it's fine, they don't have molars, so they can go out and eat all the plants they want and they'll just poop those seeds right out and then the plants will go everywhere and everyone will be so happy um, except us because we're eating all these spicy peppers. But the reason why we still eat these spicy peppers, there are a few names for it, my favorite is benign masochism. Which is just the idea that you're like, yeah, I'm gonna fuck myself up a little bit, but it'll be fine. (laughs) And the reason for this is whenever you eat capsaicin, it's kind of like a a little bit of fight or flight and you also get a dopamine response. So like it's the same thing as anything that really makes you happy is a lot of dopamine. So you can kind of get addicted to it and people just pop chilies like drugs, they're crazy. (laughs) So it shows up at the table And, or before it shows up at the table, I guess, we are trying to think of what we can do to combat all of this horrible, horrible thing that is going to go into our mouths. And the waitress makes some suggestions about what we should do instead of just the water that's sitting on her table. She's like, you know, you should get some milk or some whatever, just the water probably isn't going to work out. She was really scared about what was going to happen when we ate it. Because generally people eat this at like 3 o'clock in the morning when they're super drunk. This was 2 p.m. on a Sunday... I, yeah, it wasn't really the time for it at all. Um, So the thing that you want when you're looking for something to cool down the capsaicin burn is something that is, capsaicin is soluble in. So uh, something that can dissolve in. Capsaicin is not water soluble. So whenever you put a bunch of water in your mouth, it's just gonna kind of move the capsaicin around or just let the capsaicin stay where it's sitting on your tongue, causing all kinds of fun times to happen. But for example, capsaicin is fat soluble. So if you take whole fat milk and you drink whole fat milk, it's gonna dissolve in that milk and then be whisked away to your stomach to further adventures. Uh, (laughs) But if you tried to do, say, skim milk, you would be screwed because there's no fat in skim milk and it's not really gonna do anything. It's just gonna be like water. On the other hand, you can also use beer or any sort of alcohol because capsaicin is also alcohol soluble. Yes, you fucked up while you're doing it, it's fine. Uh, So, what I ordered, a beer and a side of yogurt. And Layla ordered a glass of milk that came with a ton of ice cubes in it. I've never seen milk with ice cubes in it, but they knew what was going on. Um, And she spent a really long time deciding between white and red wine. Despite the fact that fall was just going to destroy her mouth. And it's like picking trim for your coffin. Like, it's never going to mean anything to you. So, all right. It it shows up, and we start eating, and this is like five or ten minutes in. Talking about it, Layla's like, this is kind of rough, and I'm like, it's not so bad. It's not so bad. The worst thing about it was when they served it to us, it was scalding hot. Like, it was absurd. So along with the fact that my mouth was being tricked, so what happened is I was like, no, this is pretty fine, and what I was trying to do was separate all of my chicken Um, and all of my rice, and I didn't want, like, I wanted to go through the very painful part of it first and then do the easy mode stuff later. So my idea was you are always in charge of your body. Like, if you are eating incredibly spicy food and your mouth is like, no, stop putting spicy food in me, you can be like, fuck you, mouth. Like, you're going to listen to me because I have a huge brain that I'm using to control everything else in my body, and I'm just going to keep shoveling this death sauce into you, and you're going to suck it up. And so I'm giving a speech about that, and at the very end of the video, Layla looks up and she's like, this is going all wrong. (laughs) So about 10 minutes in, Layla gives up after after drinking all of the milk and all of the wine and trying to shovel a ton of rice into the fall. And I get down to this point. So I'm probably 80% of the way done, right? 18 minutes of the 30-minute time limit that we have. And I'm just like, this is fine. I'm going to start using a lot more yogurt. I was kind of saving that until the end. It was really time, it was, it was my time to shine, really, and just like stomp Layla into the ground in our chili battle. But apparently you're not always in charge of your own body. <laughs> so one of the things that happens whenever you eat a lot of a spicy food or capsaicin the full thing or anything that your stomach doesn't really like is you get stomach cramps. And I don't just mean like, oh, my stomach hurts a little bit. I need some Tums. What I mean is uh, I spent 12 minutes. Oh, you can't really see what's happening there. But this is me laying on the floor of a Lower East Side Indian restaurant bathroom (laughs) at 2.30 in the afternoon, (laughs) taking a selfie, covered in like my own sweat, in a pool of my own sweat, taking a selfie in like a very shiny like black marble wall. So it was very nice in there, except on the floor itself, which was pretty bad, but it was so cold that I just was <laughs> covering my body in that. Uh, and all I wanted to do in the world was throw it all up because my stomach was like, I don't like this at all. And I was like, we'll get rid of it, we'll get rid of it. And my body's like, I don't trust you anymore. So, so I laid on the floor of the bathroom for about 12 minutes with the like sands of time slipping through my fingers to complete this challenge. And then I just walked out and there's a video of like everyone else at the table being like, where did Soma go? He's been gone a very long time. And that's what I was doing. So <laughs> it's, this is really the story of me being crushed by uh, Portuguese, uh, wait, Portuguese colonialism, joined with New World vegetables, and some sort of insatiable desire to pursue benign masochism to a very, very horrible end—the end. The end.
1: Um, so this is a brief interlude that we like to call story time. I'm going to talk about sriracha, and one of the things that's come—I've come across again and again and again—is the stereotype that Americans don't like spicy food. We've heard this all, right? right? Not just, not just other countries saying Americans don't like spicy food, like we have, to, we have to dumb things down when they come to America, it has to be more bland, but like we as Americans say that about ourselves. We're like, oh, we no, Americans don't really like spicy food. I don't think that's true. Do you think that's true?
0: Well, you're about to tell me that it's not true and why it's not true, but I think it's true. You, you actually do think that's true? I mean, middle America, people who are from Ohio.
1: Oh, I'm from Cleveland. That's was a joke. Meh. However, listen. Okay, but there is some, like, larger historic context. I mean, I want to talk to you specifically about the history of hot sauce in America, which is actually quite old. We can even go further back than that. Like, one of the first spicy spices that were, was a major part of the American diet was black pepper. Now, I know it feels a little ludicrous to think of black pepper as being spicy, but when's the last time you, like, got that big crunch of black pepper on your salad or whatever, and you're like, oh, shit, that is spicy. It's got, it's got a little heat to it.
0: Who likes brisket?
1: I like brisket.
0: All right, yeah, so brisket with, like, a really thick pepper rub, like, it's spicy. it's It's spicy. It's hellish in a good way. So for
1: 1820, that was spicy, but that wasn't enough for us. By the 1840s, we started consuming curries. By the 1880s, we loved chili powder and chilies and loved eating things as hot as possible. And now here we are with sriracha, which is this, like, sensation. But what I want to talk about is this. Sriracha is as much from an American tradition as it is from anywhere else. Because the history of American hot sauce actually goes back pretty, pretty far. Now I feel like it's New Englanders in particular in the 19th century that are blamed for like the sad state of American food and for liking bland British food, blah, blah, blah. But by 1807, we found advertisements in newspapers. I say we as as I was actually the one scouring the newspapers. Some other academic whose work that I then read and now just regurgitating to you found. Yay! <laughs> Research found in newspapers from 1807 some of the first advertisements for hot sauces. Um, and they were they were hot hot sauces. Starting like in the 1840s we have one that we know was made out of bird peppers, which is a little how do you say the other word che- cheat the pans? Do you know what I'm talking about?
0: No, I don't pronounce that. Peri peri maybe?
1: No, no, no. C H I L T E. Yeah, I don't say that. You don't say that word out loud, just in your head. No, yeah. So, me too. Does anybody know how it's pronounced? No, we have no idea. No one's ever said that word out loud.
0: No one ever has to. Who it's do we fine. call?
1: Who's? All right, I'm going to place a phone call and we'll figure out how it's said. At any rate, those are pre- they're wild. They're all Native American, but they're wild, like North American peppers. They're otherwise known as bird peppers. They're about that big. Thomas Jefferson was a big fan of them, and they're pretty hot. Do you know what they are in the Scoville?
0: So, they're pretty similar to Thai. Chilies, which are 50,000, I think, on the Scoville scale. So 10 times spicier than jalapeno.
1: That's hot. Yeah. Yeah, it's hot. hot. So, 1840s, we've got bird pepper hot sauce being made in Massachusetts. So, like, that doesn't sound like the food of bland New Englanders to me. Like, someone is shaking that stuff on their eggs. Like, I don't know what else is there in the 1840s other than pilgrims and Irish. So, somebody's eating it, right? So, of course, now the most. Famous hot sauce comes about a lot earlier than you would anticipate. This is a newspaper advertisement from 1868, and if you can read the top, it says Tabasco pepper sauce. That's not generic Tabasco pepper sauce. That is the Tabasco pepper sauce, that you can still go to the grocery store and the corner store and buy.
0: What year did you say?
1: 1868. 1868. So where are those bland Americans with their bland food? Because this guy started to put this advertisement in the paper in 1868. He brought these Tabasco pepper seeds to America from Mexico. He had a couple acres of land. He needs to make some money in the Reconstruction South. And so he planted these peppers, and he pureed them into a sauce, which he added salt to, and then put in oak barrels. And he aged for about 30 days. That's called fermenting in, in the hot sauce world. And then after 30 days, he add vinegar to it, which stopped the fermentation process and let it age another 30 days, put it in old cologne bottles and sold it for a dollar a piece, which was quite a bit of money in 1868 actually. That was a a, a day's salary for an average labor was a dollar. But you know, Tabasco, you buy it once you've got it for like a lifetime. It just sits there in the back of the pantry. And it, he created this little kind of... Um, Stoppered cork that let you shake it, because in his own words, he said Tabasco was better in drops as opposed to being poured. So we've been sloshing Tabasco on our food since the 1860s, which is why I feel like really passionate that this is a negative stereotype about Americans. It's a self-imposed stereotype. And I don't get it. Um, by, there's this boom in hot sauce or in the 1870s. There are dozens and dozens of brands that are mimicking Tabasco. So they're not even the only one that was out there. They're just one of the few that has survived from that time period. And they have their own cookbook, and they have these charming advertisements. This one's from the 19-teens. And it was a standard ingredient in barbecue sauce, on oysters, like we use it today. Um, and like you mix it with like Roquefort cheese, which is a weird, early 20th century recipe for entertaining. I don't know. And like in your egg salad, your deviled eggs, you know, things like that. So the end of the story is American hot sauces are generally made of ground chilies, vinegar, and salt. That's kind of our style of hot sauce, which you're going to see repeated in um, the sriracha tradition, which is inspired by American hot sauces. But not only that, We were ready for this. We want this. We're all in this room because we wanted Sriracha. And the reason it's become so popular is because it is, it's the perfect hot sauce for a couple reasons. Oh my God, some of that look.
0: It's ketchup, it's spicy ketchup.
1: But that's the thing that's beautiful about it. Before Heinz 57, there were hundreds of different recipes for ketchups, both that you could make in your home and on the market. You made it from walnuts. You made it from mushrooms. You made it from fish. No, but you made it from Heinz, all those other Heinz won things. the market
0: because exactly. – No, they cheated. The they cheated. Here's what they happened. Cheated. They were the best. They This is me brandishing history against we are Sarah. fighting. They cheated because they took – like. Fresh, generally ketchup was made with tomatoes that were like gross and bad. Yeah. And then they took fresh tomatoes and made ketchup out of good, normal, real tomatoes. And then they went to like the FDA and they were like, make a rule that you can't use bad tomatoes in, in ketchup. And the FDA was like, sounds good to me. And then they... Ran everyone else out of business because they couldn't use, like, rotten tomatoes anymore. And then they were the kingpins because they created a market and then shut out the rest of the market. Have you ever had
1: rotten tomato ketchup?
0: Never in my life. Well, okay. (laughs) I bet it's really good, though, because people apparently bought it back then. One. (laughs) They made $1 a day, so. One.
1: (laughs) Apparently our next project is Rotten Tomato Ketchup, right? Fine by me. I have made Rotten Walnut and Rotten Mushroom Ketchup. You just mix it with a bunch of salt and put it on your shelf and forget about it. It's very, and then you drink the juice that occurs. That's it's, like soy sauce. Yeah, yeah, it all was ah. some soy sauce. Yeah. No, the reason I think, okay, all FDA shenanigans aside, because the FDA wasn't even established until the 19 teens, and ketchup is older than that. Heinz 57. Oh.
0: <laughs> but they what, they. Made laws happen. Your favorite dude wasn't around yet. Sure, what's that guy? Doctor Wiley. Doctor Wiley, yes.
1: Oh, that's a whole nother talk. Doctor Wiley <laughs> was every the head of give. the poison squad, and he, he would hire volunteers, mostly chemists, oddly, to eat um, suspected poisonous foods. <laughs> To see what would happen, and somehow nobody died. I mean, they're all dead now, but
0: eventually, eventually, it worked its magic.
1: Listen, we're way off point. The point is,
0: it's on. It's my turn now.
1: No, ketchup won because ketchup was the best product. It made the best ketchup, and we didn't need all those hundreds of other ones. We're like, oh, this is kind of sweet, and it's kind of tangy. This is dip. This is what I want. All the other ketchups, I'm done with you. And that's what's happening with sriracha. Cook's Illustrated called sriracha the best hot sauce. It beat out Frank's Red Hot. It beat out uh, Tabasco. It beat out everything. Yeah, but
0: serious seats did a tasting of srirachas, and it didn't come in a very good Oh, compared good to other thing. srirachas. Yeah. Well,
1: that's a whole different battlefield, I think, because we're talking American hot sauce, and sriracha is as American as apple pie. We'll get to that. And I think it's two major factors. One, viscosity. Sriracha is the thickest hot sauce, which other than oysters is a little weird because it sits on top instead of mingling with the oyster juice. It is better to have a sauce that's a little bit thicker, much thicker consistency. And two, heat. Tabasco is about a 12,000 on Scoville, whereas sriracha is only about a 6,000. So it's got broader appeal because it's got more flavor because it's also made from fresh chilies as opposed to fermented chilies. It's all fresh, 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 and it's less hot, so more people like it, and you get more flavor out of it. You don't get more
0: flavor because it's not fermented, so there's no
1: fermentation Natural flavor
0: MSG, shall we say?
1: i mean and compared to there's less burn and more taste to it i think it's a better hot sauce for being less hot so my my thesis right now is sriracha is an american hot sauce and it is the best american hot sauce the end
0: i'll agree with half of that all right now i get to talk okay no clapping yet i have i can no, just walk yeah. this it's fine you can go over there okay
1: I don't think I can. I, have to I need my slides because I have some sort of notes. I'm standing in the middle it. of the stage, so am I here? Okay. Swap.
0: All right. So, uh, the way that we are going to figure out who's right about this is we're going to have a chili contest where we both eat the spiciest chili in the world. How but what's gonna... the spiciest chili in the world? <laughs> Let's find out. So, I don't want to. <laughs> once upon a time, okay, here's what happened. Uh, never listened to any historical records about chili peppers because in 1776, that's pretty recent, right? Like
1: 70s, yeah, 1776 was seven basically year like 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, 20 a
0: Dutch years. botanist found a bunch of chili peppers. Like these are these are basically the category called superhots, like the really hot superhots. Clearly, you know what that means. Um, the superhot chili peppers, and he was like, "Ah, oh, these are clearly from China." Despite the fact that they had never been to China, they wouldn't get to China for like another hundred years, and they're originally from America. But he decided to call them Capsicum chinense because they're peppers from China. That's the genus and species. I think this is
1: not fair to 18th century, 19th yeah, 18th century botanists. Yeah,
0: it's fine. Maybe he was just dumb. It's he was probably dumb. It's fine. But he got to name someone. Let him name something. Um, So all of these peppers are from that. Species? Yeah, I guess these are all cultivars. So uh, in 1994, the Guinness Book of World Records granted the Red Savina the glory of being the spiciest pepper in the world, and it clocked in at 0.6 million Scoville units, so 600,000 Scoville units. Um, I believe it's a habanero cultivar, so it's about three times as spicy as your general habanero. And I was trying to find out where its name came from, And I couldn't find anything except a Christian saint. And uh, the empress from a Dungeons & Dragons movie that came out in 2000. So I would really like to think that this is named by a time traveler who went back in time to 1994 and named it after his favorite character from his favorite movie.
1: From the future.
0: From the future, yeah. So that was fun while it lasted. Uh, And then in 2007, our favorite pepper, the ghost pepper, showed up on the scene. When you read about it, people are like, it was rumored that there was a pepper in India that was really spicy. And no one was able to track it down until 2007. What the fuck? Like, there are plenty of people in India and plenty of scientists in India and plenty of people who could, like, run this through a machine and see how no, spicy it is. It's all a mystery.
1: Yeah, there. apparently
0: not. So it's no mystery. one ever went to northern India.
1: I so- spent about seven minutes doing research yesterday, which was. <laughs> Which was just me watching this guy LA Beast on YouTube eat one of these and then get kicked in the nuts
0: (laughs) Another really good one is okay So my joke that I didn't make before because I couldn't see my notes was that 50% of the videos on YouTube are large men crying After eating ghost peppers. They're weeping and then also there's a really good one of someone in a library eating one (laughs) And so he has to be like really quiet So go home, look up Ghost Pepper, and 50% of YouTube is right there, all the videos room. are good, everyone's crying, it's, misery has never been so so wonderful. Um, so it clocked in at 1.05 million Scoville units, which is twice as hot as the red Savina. So Dungeons and Dragons, get out of town, there's wow. something new. Yeah. And okay, so you're like, it's the ghost pepper. Uh, Jalakia means pepper, sure. And then you're like, boot. That clearly means ghost. Boot. It's a lie. It means Bhutan. Ah. So it means it means ghost in Hindi, but in you know uh, Assamese, which is where they name this in Assam, uh, in India, it just it just means it's from Bhutan. So that's or I guess that's. English. Or I don't maybe know. Bhutan anyway, that means it's, it's a Bhutanese pepper, so it's really hot, but no one gives Bhutan credit for it. Maybe it's not even from Bhutan. I don't know. So other um, facts? No, that's all I got. There all it right. is.
1: Yay. So, oh yeah, there <laughs> are Boom.
0: ghosts. This doesn't tell me about all my fun animations I have. So you think it's a ghost pepper, but really it's just a Bhutan pepper where everyone's really happy because they measure Boom. how good they are with yeah gross national happiness. <laughs> Um, So, the problem with chili pepper testing is what the hell are you testing? Like, you grow a bunch of peppers, do you grow them in, like, one place? Do you grow them, like, all over the world? Do you go to where they're from and, like, ship them somewhere? And then you test them, do you you decide, like, I'm going to take the average heat, or I'm going to take the hottest heat, or I'm going to take, you know, the one that I really like how it looks, and I'm just going to test that and count that. Everyone disagrees about this. People tend to go for the peak heat, but sometimes they like the average heat. So, generally, this is a shit show, and the Guinness Book of World Records. I wouldn't have believed this when I was 11 years old, but it's kind of a farce. So, bear with me on this. All right. So, in February 18th, 2011, the Infinity Chili got 1.1 million Scoville units as its peak heat. Incredible, the most incredible part of this, it was, it was grown in England. So like, it's zero degrees in England, it's always raining in England, and yet somehow they were able to crank out this incredibly hot pepper. Uh, this guy named Nick Woods, who apparently wore a sombrero whenever he was being photographed for like the Daily Mail. Uh, which is funny because I, A, I couldn't find a picture of it online only reporting about the fact that he was wearing a sombrero. And number two, he doesn't know anything about Mexico. But the, the saddest part of it was that it was only the spiciest for like two weeks, oh. right? Because another person in England grew the, the Naga viper. And that's, Naga is a, uh, the Naga, Nagaland is a place by Assam in India. So it's like a place where hot peppers come from. Um, and vipers are animals that bite you, that sting real bad, mm. like eating this kind of thing. Um, so 1.3 million Scovo units. We're up there. We're up there. But then one month later, come on. Come on, Slides. In March 2011, the Trinidad Scorpion Butch T clocked in at 1.46 million. So uh, why do you think it has the name Scorpion? Because it looks like scorpions. I don't know if you can see it, but if you look maybe down here, yeah. you can see this like cool... Oh,
1: yeah. It's got a little beak.
0: Yeah, it yeah. has a little beak. And that's just like a whole, that's what those peppers look like. They got little beaks, yeah. and it's crazy, and they're scorpions. And it's named Butch T because of this really sweet guy who doesn't like publicity named Butch Taylor, who, like, he makes a bunch of seeds, and he sends them out to people, and basically those people then get the credit for growing the spiciest pepper. So mm. they named this after him. He was one of the people who helped breed it. I couldn't find a picture of him online because oh. he's kind of a nice guy, but this is a guitarist named... Uh, uh, with the same name, so I figured he's a, he's Butch Taylor. That guy's Butch Taylor. They All probably right. look similar enough. Sure. So then, in 2012, another scorpion runs onto the scene with a peak of two million Scoville units. The Trinidad Maruga scorpion, which is named after an area in Trinidad. Um, what happened was this is a naturally occurring tr- chili. It wasn't actually uh, cultivated to be very hot. What happened was the New Mexico State University Chili Pepper Institute, uh, Mm. which some people think is very biased. Uh, They got a bunch of like the hottest chilies around the world and they grew them all in New Mexico, as you do. And then they put them all in magic machines to get the Scoville units out. And they were like, well, out of all the ones that we grew, the Trinidad Moruga Scorpion is clearly the hottest at two million Scoville units. So they tried to apply science. Other people disagree about the science that they applied because they were growing it in New Mexico instead of where it's from. But mm. eh, who really cares? I don't know. Everyone fights a lot about this because it's all just marketing. And speaking of marketing, we have the Carolina Reaper, Ooh. which clearly sounds like it's going to kill you. And the reason why it sounds like it's going to kill you is because the guy who grew this like became friends with the dudes that worked for Pepsi doing marketing. And they were like, let me tell you what you're going to do. You're going to market this as the Carolina Reaper. You're going to say it's the hottest. You're going to keep saying it's the hottest until everyone believes you. And then in your Wikipedia page, it's going to say that you spent $12,000 certifying it as the hottest pepper in the world. Who cares that you spent $12,000? I'm not sure. Someone does because they put it on there. It clocked in at $2.2 million. There's a big battle raging now about whether it is actually the spiciest or whether the Maruga Scorpions are the spiciest. Or they're like random dude in Louisiana who's crossbreeding a bunch of things has the spiciest. Looks like you're gonna say something. I'm just,
1: no, I'm just deep in thought. What do you do with a pepper this hot? What's that? What's the
0: point? Did you read that thing in the New Yorker? All right. Here are the great things from the New Yorker. Two great things. Number one, in the New Yorker, they (laughs) reprinted a quote from Maxim in which eating a Carolina Reaper was like being face fucked by Satan. So so I'm not claiming to have read every issue of The New Yorker, but according to a blog post, that's probably the first time face-fucked anyone has felt face-fucked in The New Yorker, much less being face-fucked by Satan. Uh, And the second best thing from that New Yorker article, which is about the creation of the Carolina Reaper, is that... Chili pepper growing is gardening for men in the way that grilling is cooking for men. Because men can't go garden. Men have to be no. like, I'm making the spiciest thing in the world. This is going to be great. You're going to die when you Very eat this. Manly. And like, you can't be like, this petunia is incredible. It just doesn't have the same kind of thing. So that's what dudes do. We make hot peppers and we eat them and so we it's cry like about in bathrooms. Being
1: masculine, it's. Oh, wait a minute. So the reason that we keep growing these hotter and hotter peppers is not for any like culinary value of the world. It's just for being... So you can feel more like a man. That's the bottom line?
0: Well, why do we try to be the best at anything? Really. We're empty inside, and we're just chasing... <laughs> chasing a ghost. Chasing a ghost pepper. Okay,
1: chasing a ghost pepper.
0: Yeah.
1: And on that note... So, who, who likes sriracha? Yeah! Come on, people are fanatical about sriracha right now. It is a thing. I mean, it's amazing how quickly this has like exploded into American culture. Now, I said at the beginning that my role is usually like historian, and what you may have noticed is that someone's talking an awful lot about history this time around. We kind of swap roles a little bit to just, just this time. And here's why. I'm fascinated with sriracha because I think it is the most important thing that has happened to American food in the past decade. <laughs> I... You left. No, I will. I stand behind that statement. I think that is absolute truth. One of the things I'm really fascinated with as a historian is how our national flavor profile has changed over time. And it's kind of happened cumulatively and it's happened chronologically. We've discovered more things, or something becomes more available, or something new is invented, and it changed the way our whole country is eating. And the most recent example of that is sriracha sauce. There's this theory that your taste buds get dull in space, but also I suspect that space food is also just kind of bland. So NASA has begun shipping bottles of sriracha up to the space station. So there's all these photos of the iconic bottle, right? That is unmistakable, wafting around on the space station with the astronauts, which I think is pretty awesome. So, okay, but let's let's begin at the beginning here. What am I, you know, what is this word actually? Just pronunciation, we'll get out of the way. We're talking a lot about the origin of words, which I think is interesting. We'll get to the origin of what sriracha means in a little bit. Um, I'm saying it the American way right now, sriracha. That's pretty much how everyone here says it. Um, If you are Thai, you would say Siraja. So pick from those two, those are the two correct ways because it's based on a Thai sauce, which we'll cover a little bit more later, but it was made here in America, so you really can't go wrong. So that's me and that is David Tran who created Sriracha. So I got the photo with him to prove that this actually happened. I went to the Sriracha factory at the beginning of October because I'm researching a book that's going to be out with Simon and Schuster in 2015, which is exactly Thank you. Thank you. It is my first it is my first book, so it's it's a big deal and a big life change for me. And books give you an excuse to do things like I called at 2 a.m. California time to listen to their mailboxes to try to figure out who I could leave a message with that would call me back. And it worked. And someone called me back, and it was basically like, I would like to come see the Sriracha factory. And they're like, okay, when would you like to come? And I was like, writing books is awesome. (laughs) So if you ever want to do something that don't let normal people do, just write a book about it, and in you go. So here I am after doing a tour and an interview. So let me tell you about this guy who David Tran is, because he single-handedly created um, sriracha sauce. He is ethnically Chinese, as are you, sir. (laughs) Kind of here for all the ethnically Chinese in the house. Yeah, all right. So, however, he was actually born in South Vietnam. So there's an ethnic Chinese population, or was an ethnic Chinese population in South Vietnam, and is still, because things got really, really difficult after Saigon fell. So, the end of the Vietnam War happens in 1975 when Saigon falls, okay? And that's when North and South Vietnam become consolidated. And after this fall, there's a lot of terrible things going on, like people who'd work with Americans being tortured and punished, and the ethnically Chinese, just for existing as ethnically Chinese, were being tortured and punished as well. And the North Vietnamese were forcing the ethnically Chinese businesses to shut down. So, they were put in this very difficult position of living in fear and not being able to make a living. So we, you know, made some mistakes during Vietnam. And we had this, as a country, we had a lot of guilt that We let it out by working around immigration laws to let as many refugees from South Vietnam in as possible to our country. Um, Between the years of 1985 and 2000, more than half a million South Vietnamese came to live in America, and that doesn't even include the decade before. No, I don't quite have numbers for that. I'm not sure if anybody does. Because what was happening is people were so desperate to get out of South Vietnam that they were just like getting on freighters and going into the ocean. Um, Mr. Tram. he lived in South Vietnam, and his business there was making hot sauce with his family. There was one that was apparently particularly popular, that was a hot pepper sauce that had some oil and also galangal mixed into it that was a local favorite. His business is shut down by the North Vietnamese, and he decides to split his family up. He's about 30 at this time. And they're going to leave four different ways and hopefully meet in America. He gets on a boat named Hoi Phong. Ring a bell? Hoi Fong is the name of the company that he'll later found in America, that he says he named the company so he's always reminded of where he came from and how he got here. Hoi Fong is just a cargo freighter, and it goes to Hong Kong, and it just shows up. And Hong Kong says, you can't land here, but they have nowhere else to go. So they sit in the harbor outside of Hong Kong for a month before Hong Kong finally says, okay, all right, come on. And from there, the people are dispersed around the world. Most of them, we, I mean, America in general accepts more refugees than all other countries combined. We accept a huge number of people that's outside of our normal immigration quotas. Um, and we definitely did that in the wake of the Vietnam War too. So David Tran comes here for Vietnam and he ends up in Boston, of all places, in January. <laughs> and he has a brother that ends up in Los Angeles. And he gets on the phone and he says to his brother, do they grow peppers there? And his brother says, yes. And he says, all right, great, I'm coming. He landed in January 1980. By February 1980, he says he was making hot sauce. Yeah. So why did he decide to go to the hot sauce business in America? Well, he thought to himself, there's going to be a lot of Vietnamese people coming, and they really like their noodle dish. Let's say PHO at the moment. <laughs> on, the, on the count of three, how do you say this word? One, two, three. Oh. <laughs> it was actually rather harmonious, the two ways coming together. So a lot of Americans say the word pho because in the English language, the O loses its beautiful squiggly accents that gives it a different sound. So we say pho. If you're Vietnamese or know Vietnamese or want to, you can also say "fa," which is what the little squiggly O's make on the O sound. But actually, this is what someone had a fight about, not even with people watching because this is just what we do all the time. The word faux comes from the French word for fire. Does anyone here speak French? What is the word for fire? F. So, if you want to be really authentic, my argument is it's neither fa or faux, it's actually f. Because f, little did I know. Um, Vietnam was occupied by France in the 1880s. And during that occupation, there was a lot of cultural exchange. Before that point, Vietnamese didn't eat a lot of beef. They were beasts of burden. They tilled fields. They plowed things. They carried things around. You didn't eat them until the French showed up. And they were like, delicious, come here. And then you start seeing beef. In Vietnamese dishes, including this, this noodle bowl. And historians believe that it is based off a pat of pho, which is kind of like a, a beef stew, essentially. Um, and the North Vietnamese version is very simple, it's usually just beef noodles broth. In South Vietnam is where it gets more complicated, where you get mix-ins like a cold stone, you know, you got your Thai basil, you got your little bean sprouts, you got your lemon on top. So this dish comes with all those South Vietnamese immigrants to America, and it's delicious. And traditionally you put hot sauce on a little plate next to it, and like as you're scooping things out, you dipped it and ate it. So that's what David Tran is thinking. Vietnamese are coming, they want their hot sauce, let's make some sauce to put on it. Okay, so what was the hot sauce that was being put on it back in Vietnam? Well, it was any variety, but it was likely a sauce from the place, from the city of Si Racha. That's where Si Racha is, it is in Thailand. With me so far, ethically Chinese, South Vietnam, Thailand. We're just moving around all of Southeast Asia. In the port of Sriracha, there was a hot sauce created about 80 years ago called Sriracha, Sriracha Panish. Um, The name is spelled slightly differently because it's impossible to exactly translate the Thai characters into English. So that's when we get something that looks a little different and kind of sounds the same. This was made by um, a lady with a lovely, lovely name. Ah, there she is. Her name is Ms. Thanam Chakapak. I don't know much about her other than that. She's kind of legendary, being that she created it 80 years ago. She created it for home use. People said it was delicious. You should make this commercially, so she did, and the business still exists in Thailand. And this product, of course, is now being imported more into America in the wake of American sriracha. Um, I've not had it myself. Some of you have had it, yeah? This one? What does it it taste like? What's the difference? Uh, Sweeter. Sweeter? But is it sweeter? I don't know. (laughs) It's not as biscuits it's more fluid it's more sharp did you say Oh, no, there's another one. oh shark brand, brand which is from China Hello. So there are several international brands of Sriracha out there. This is the original among them that is named after well and that's why there's even you know knockoffs of Sriracha sauce now that are even in um, bottles that are trying to fool you. They can all be called Sriracha because Sriracha is a place in Thailand. The name can't be copyrighted so you can call anything you want to Sriracha and it's, it's fine. But it doesn't matter because everyone knows what the original looks like not this original. American original so it doesn't really matter. So there's a chain of events. He's in Inspired by this dish, and he's inspired by this hot sauce, so he starts making sriracha in America. And I was doing something. There it goes. Oh, one of the uh, sriracha is a port city, so there the hot sauce is eaten a lot with seafood. But it's also eaten with these amazing Thai omelets that you mix a little bit of fish sauce in and deep-fried in a wok. So it's like especially crispy. And then that's the traditional thing you just cover in sriracha. I've never had it personally. It sounds amazing. So that was the inspiration point, but um, I don't even know who to credit with this. I found this so randomly online. David Tran said, I know I'm not making Thai sriracha. I'm making my sriracha he said it was kind of near the 84 Olympics and he's like, okay, there's Heinz 57, what if I made like a Tran 84? And it's something that like everybody is gonna like, not just Thai people, not just Vietnamese people, but everybody, Americans too. So he starts making this sauce. He'd go to the green market every day, and he would buy red jalapenos because the market vendors didn't want red jalapenos. That meant they were fully ripe and they were going to go bad soon. So he got them at a discount every morning. He's grinding them by hand. He's filling the bottles using a spoon. He's put in the back of a a van, and he's driving around to stores in Chinatown. And everyone is saying, yeah, this is good, but the Americans aren't going to like it. Americans don't like spicy food. You're going, to make it, you're going to make it sweeter. you got to put a tomato base in it, or the Americans aren't going to buy it. And he said, no. He said, hot sauce has got to be hot. I'm not making mayonnaise here. That's, a, that's an actual quote from David Tran. <laughs> so he keeps it hot. And I asked him when we got to sit down with each other, what was the first year where you couldn't make enough hot sauce to keep up with demand? And he said, every year. Every year since the beginning, I could never make a hot sauce for all the people who wanted to eat it. So from his first year in 1980, it became more and more popular. But for the next decade, you could find Sriracha generally in places like this. This is Faux 75 outside of Washington, DC. I know you've been there, Soma. Um, One of my favorite Faux restaurants and probably the first place that I came into contact with Sriracha, which again, by the way, you're supposed to put on a plate next to it, but who, what American has ever done that, right? (laughs) We just pick up that bottle and we squirt it in there until that sauce is bright red. And then halfway through, we're like, oh, I put too much in. I'm so hot and sweaty and this burns and I've ruined everything. But I'm going to keep eating it because it's delicious. So the first place that you often see new trends in food is in ethnic enclaves um, attached to new ethnicities coming into the country. There's actually a system, a five-phase system, of how a product goes from obscurity to being a household name. This I called phase zero because this is not even in the American consciousness yet. Here's phase one. Phase one is it goes from those ethnic restaurants into high-end restaurants, usually via kitchen workers. So in California, the high-end restaurants were seeing their South Asian kitchen workers using this bright red sauce with the green cap. Again, by the way... Side note, David Tran, some kind of genius. He not only created the sauce, he also designed how the bottle would look. He designed all of it. And in the current factory, he designed and maintains all of the machines. The one thing he doesn't care about is numbers. His daughter is in charge of it, and he he says, are we selling Sriracha? And she goes, yep. And that's like the end of their business conversation. (laughs) So it moves from ethnic to high-end restaurants. After it goes to high-end restaurants, phase two is it's written up by, well, places like Bon Appetit, who declared it the flavor of the year in 2010. So high-end gourmet media and blogs start to write up this particular ingredient or flavor, in this case, sriracha. Phase three... Now, Subway is the most hilarious, but it was kind of late to this game. Um, as long as three years ago, Applebee's and TGI Friday's were, consi- were including sriracha hot sauces for, there was like a dipping sauce for their shrimp and their double fried green beans, things like that. It starts appearing in mainstream restaurants. That's stage three. Stage four it turns up in mainstream media blogs like um, home and garden magazines, women's magazines, things like that. So here it is in Martha Stewart for sriracha glazed chicken. And then phase five, you see it in major <laughs> retailers. Not photoshopped. This is real. And look at that. Yeah, I know. 264? That's ridiculous. <laughs> That's ridiculous. So 264 for your bottle of sriracha. So, You can trace almost all kind of ingredients like this, and I don't think sriracha is a fad because it's kind of followed this trajectory, but also because it fits all these other trends of us liking spicier and spicier foods, and also food being influenced by new immigrants, and also food being influenced by war. It's not just people coming here, but it's our troops that were in Vietnam getting familiar with a new, different cuisine, different part of the world. So all those three factors work to bring new flavors into our world. So I was there. Do you want to know how Sriracha's is made? I'm going to tell you. That's a factory. It's their new factory in Irwindale that they just moved to in the last year. They were in a factory in Rosemead for about 20 years. Both of these are suburbs suburbs of Los Angeles. And when I rolled up, I was expecting, like, you know, low-slung industrial, and I I rolled up to a place that looked nicer than the Holiday Inn that I left that morning. When you walk in the front door, the smell of garlic, like, gently caresses you. And you're like... (laughs) Oh, I'm here I'm here and I was led to this conference room and I was sat down with David Tran and Donna Lamb, who's the floor manager and David Tran said Okay, we're gonna show you everything And I said what he's like we've decided that we always worry before about competition But there is no competition for us, so we would rather people got to know about our products So you can see everything keep in mind Sriracha has never advertised ever They've never spent one cent on advertising, yet their business increases by 20% every single year. Last year, they did $60 million in sriracha sales, $60 million, without even really that much media attention. It's all the hubbub, it's all the word of mouth, it's all, I don't know. So sriracha actually doesn't start here, it starts here, at the pepper farm. Something really unique about their business is that all of the peppers used to, grow, used to make sriracha are grown in fields around Los Angeles by one farmer, Mr. Craig Underwood, owner of Underwood Family Farms. It's him and his farm manager, of course, and the thousands of workers that make this happen. But while I was hanging out with him and his lovely dog, Holly, short for jalapeno, she was adorable. <laughs> And also mad because I was sitting in her seat in the truck. She was also really grumpy, but I still love her. He was on the phone buying new land because he cannot keep up. There is not enough land that he can buy to keep up with the demand for red jalapeno peppers. Sriracha has single-handedly moved the citrus industry out of the valley around Los Angeles because they bought up all the land and converted it to jalapeno pepper fields. Uh, these, are, these are true things. I'm not even lying to you a little bit. Um, they are red jalapenos. They're a specific hybrid that I asked Craig how he got into business with David Tran, and he said, well, I called him up about 20 years ago and said, uh, can I grow some peppers for you? And that was, that was it. He, now they work exclusively with each other. They have a specific hybrid that they grow that they've picked for its, its particular potency. It has the right amount of spicy that David Tran wants for the sauce. Green jalapenos. You hardly see red jalapenos in the store, right? Green jalapenos are cheaper to produce. You can harvest them sooner, and they have longer before they go bad when they're sitting on the shelves in the grocery store, too. When you wait for it to ripen, it becomes, it's still about the same amount of heat, but it's sweeter because all the sugars have kind of matured and happened in the pepper, too. So they go from green to kind of a chocolate color to a red, and they're harvested between the end of August and the end of November. And the you may have noticed if you're a real Sriracha fanatic that different bottles of Sriracha look different and taste different. I had a, a guy in one of my classes once who said that his dad like, keeps them like bottles of wine and will call him and be like, you should taste this bottle I have right now. <laughs> But it's true, because the peppers are harvested over three months, and early-season peppers taste different than late-season peppers. So there are actually differences in flavor and color between these bottles of sriracha. So these get picked. Most of the business is... I don't know if I actually hit that. Most of the business is becoming automated. I couldn't take photos of the machines because they're all proprietary. Um, but a lot of it is still done by hand. And, of course, there are Mexican migrant workers. The, farm, the farmer was like, you know, I don't think, I don't think that most of the people were illegal because who wants to pick peppers in the blazing sun, which is why he's automating his whole process because he can't find labor anymore because of increasingly restrictive immigration laws and the fact that their sons and daughters – go to school and don't have to pick peppers in fields. So the process is being automated. These guys, if you're curious, make between 80 and $125 a day, which is more than I make uh, in museum work. However, I don't have to pick peppers in a field. So it's a little like this. So that's all information I learned that I thought was fascinating. They get picked, they get sorted, and they get washed. They get dumped in the trucks and taken out of the field. All the land they own to grow peppers for jalapeno, for sriracha. Um, And this fact I got from the sriracha documentary. If you took Wall Street, everything south of Wall Street in Manhattan, that's what we'd have to convert into farmland to meet the same acreage in California. Right now it's being dedicated to jalapeno peppers for sriracha. It's a lot of territory. They're washed and sorted. They get driven to the factory in trucks. Where they get, there they are, uh, they get about 40 tons a day, a day. And um, they arrive within three hours of being picked. So it's a very, very kind of tight process here. And there's still so much dirt on them that actually, when they wash the dirt off, they give it back to the farm to put back in the field, which I think is really funny. Um, But yeah, they conserve it, recycle it. And then after it goes up this little conveyor belt and after it's washed again, that's when it gets ground, and then it gets stored uh, in these blue barrels. So in those three months, they grind all of the peppers they need to make sriracha for the rest of the year. Um, this is their factory in Irwindale, which I believe is about 60,000 square feet, and it's all filled up with barrels of sriracha. So they now have all the peppers for sriracha for the next year of existence. When it goes into the barrel, it is um, jalapeno and vinegar and a little bit of salt, and that's your, um, your sambal olik. So that's your basic chili paste. Then when they take that out of there, they can add garlic, and that's chili garlic. Or they can also add a little bit of sugar, and they add some gum thickeners, too, to get that viscosity of sriracha, and that makes sriracha. So that's how it's made. Oh, they fabricate their own bottles in-house. They used to buy them from somewhere else, but then that place went out of business, so they just bought the machines. So they have this incredibly low overhead because everything is done between two businesses, one farmer, one factory, and that's it. And then there it is, bottled, and it's coming to you right now. It's winging its way across the country into your mouth. Here's what I really want to talk about. I mean, I want to talk about all of this. But this is what I want to close on. So there's been some litigation maybe you've heard about. And I'm here to say, well, oh, most of it is about the fact that there's the city of Irwindale is suing Sriracha over air quality. That, well, here I'll read you a quote. At least 18 households have filed complaints with the city according to court records. Multiple residents complained of searing red dust and particles in the air and compared the sensation to pepper spray. One woman alleged that her children were having more frequent nosebleeds. Other complained of swollen glands. Another said that he was forced to take heartburn medication when he encountered the smell while jogging. I'm going to tell you that something stinks, and it's not the sriracha. I was there. These allegations came out on October 21st. I visited the factory on October 2nd. Both of those were in the height of the chili processing season. When I pulled up and parked directly in front of the factory, I didn't smell anything. When I entered the factory building, I smelled garlic, inside only. And when I stood next to the chili grinders, I kind of went, that's spicy. No mask, no respirator, no nothing. Now, I'm sure things are different if you live by there every day, different weather conditions, different sensitivities. But I also want you to notice that there's the factory, that huge white building, which is sitting directly across from a gravel pit. It's also a big industrial complex where there are buildings that make uh, Miller Lite and dog food. So there are some noxious odors being put into the neighborhood, actually, none of which I smelled that particular day. So the city of Irwindale is is suing. They spent 20 years in another location in Rosemead. No complaints ever. City council member, the city chairman said nothing. You never smelled anything. Nothing, nothing, nothing. These are also good people. I've met them. They're a family business. They do their best to do good business and do good by the people who work with them. The judge that took the case said that this was too severe a measure. The city demanded that the factory shut down immediately in the middle of their pepper grinding season until the odor was taken care of. And the judge said, this is kind of edgy. Usually, you can't do this in 24 hours notice. This is ruining someone's business. So what he did was he moved the date of the hearing to November 22nd, which was the end of their chili grinding season. I think he did it on purpose. Because it's not just Sriracha, it's the people who work there. It's the distributors that buy from them. It's the stores that sell it. It goes on down the line. And then on November 22nd, he ordered a partial shutdown of the factory, which included the chili grinding activities. (laughs) But their season was over already. So the judge is really not into it. Irwindale is upping their case. They're now saying that Sriracha has breached their contract by polluting the air. The Southern California EPA has been out there 11 times, has not detected anything in the air. On a scale from 1 to 10, they said the smell outside the factory rates a 1. And next to the chili grinders in the unfiltered air, it rates a 3. I don't know what's going on, but something is not right about the situation. Oh, and then, so, what's wacky about this is that the only thing all of this legal mess has done is made Sriracha even more well-known and more popular to the point where now other businesses are copying this business model of being threatened. There was a reporter for like Ad Age magazine who tried to get some queso dip for the Super Bowl and like his local store was out and he called other stores in Brooklyn and they were also out. So he did a little write-up about it and then the media took off with it and like Kraft released this public statement about how there was a mistake with shipping or a mistake with ordering ingredients and there's going to be a shortage of Vivita. and you got to go out there and you got to buy Vita because there's not going to be a lot which I thought was pretty smart because clearly they're just pretending there's sriracha and trying to create a demand for it. So, good business for them, I guess. Oh, and then the other upshot of this is that Sriracha has now gotten two letters one from Philadelphia and one from the state of Texas, inviting them to come and make and move Sriracha production to Pennsylvania or Texas. Uh, This is the state representative that wrote to Sriracha and said, I'm sorry your business is being destroyed by big government. He's Republican. why don't you come to Texas, which I thought was really nice. However, they're kind of stuck because they work with this one farmer, blah, blah, blah. So I don't know what's going to happen. But the point of the the end of the story is don't worry. There's still sriracha. They're good for the next year. They're going to get it figured out. And then I just love the way they're handling it. Because instead of getting mad, instead of releasing angry press releases, they sent out a letter that says, I'll read it to you. After many months of transitioning from Rosemead and testing our new equipment, we are pleased to announce that we are now ready to invite visitors to our new building in Irwindale. Therefore, if you are interested in seeing how our sriracha is made and how delicious it smells, (laughs) we would cordially like to invite you at your convenience to see our facility during regular office visiting hours. All you have to do is call them. Not just me. Not Soma, you or you or you. They have thrown open your doors and anybody who calls and makes an appointment, I see everyone getting excited already. (laughs) Go, go, it's the most awesome thing. So their solution to this whole ordeal is not to be a bitch about it. They're saying, come see for yourself. Come see for yourself that we're a good business, The the factory is immaculately clean. It's beyond clean. It's a point of pride for David Tran. How delicious it smells and how wonderful this product is. And I think that is so noble and so well handled. Bully for you, Sriracha. That's all I know about Sriracha. Thank you for listening. (laughs)